0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So my wife, Stephanie, and I have been coming here for about a year now, a little over a year, actually. And it's really a privilege and an honor for me to be able to teach, to be trusted by your pastors and elders to teach, and now to bring the Word of God is, is such a privilege. I always take it with very seriousness to stand before the people of God and give them the Word of God. So my wife may be glad to get me back next week, because this past week I have holed up in the library with my Bible and my books and my computer. And I've come down to kiss her good morning and kiss her good night, and that's about it. So, but the Lord has really laid the Trinity upon my heart this morning. And you know, that can be a very deep subject, but it's our God. Our God is a Trinity. We worship in Trinity and we worship in unity. So, our. Our first scripture this morning is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5, and let's just jump right into it, because I do have a lot that I want to share with us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Well, this passage is called the Shema, and Shema is just a Hebrew word for hear, so when it says, hear, O Israel, the Shema is just a reminder to the people of Israel to listen. Listen, God is one. He is one. Our Lord, The Lord our God is one. And we are to love him with all of our strength. It gives strength, soul, spirit, mind, as Jesus repeats this later in the Gospels, And I think that's just saying that in everything we do, with all of our being, we are to love God in everything we do. We are to serve him, be aware of him, practice the presence of God, walk in the spirit, walk in the light. So we serve one God. He is one. One what? He's one essence. But we know he's three persons. So He's one essence but three persons. So it's easy to say it's one essence, but what is an essence? So our big idea this morning, let's start with that. The Lord our God is one in essence, one in glory and power, and one in purpose. One in essence, also one in glory and power, and one in purpose. We're going to look at all three of these characteristics this morning and start with essence. So, our God has one essence. Easy to say, what is essence? Well, maybe at home you have this little bottle of smelly stuff, and it's maybe the essence of roses or the essence of lavender, and you know your husband, the drip here and there in the house to cover your smelly feet or maybe the smell of a dog, and it makes your house smell good. Well, that essence is not the essence that we're talking about this morning. That essence is just an extract from the rose. It is not the rose. In fact, it's probably just a cheap chemical that's not even out of the rose, just something they made that kind of, sort of smells like a rose so they can sell it cheap and make money. But that is not the rose, and it's a very poor, a cheap imitation of the real thing. Just try giving 12 chemicals to your wife for her anniversary, Rich. See how that goes. But yet so many people want to do the same thing with God. They want to just take an extract, just a little bit out here and there that's pleasing to me, that smells good, like his love or his grace. Yeah, I'll take that. But when he says, I want all of you, I want you to serve me every moment of every day. Love me with all of your heart and everything you do. Realize that I am around you. Pray without ceasing. Walk in the light. Walk by faith. Well, that's a little much, you know. I have this schedule, Lord, and Jesus says unless a man gives all he has, in Luke fourteen, all that you have, unless you hate your house, your wife, your, hus- your husband, your children, everything you have, hate. But that's it's not like a animosity against them. It's it's like I'd rather have this treasure in a field. You love the Lord your God with all your heart. And you give up everything to get that treasure in the field. Jesus says, unless you do that and give up all, you cannot be my disciple. So Piper has an excellent little book, John Piper, called God is the Gospel. And I recommend it. He points out that the gospel is not just some facts and figures that we understand and believe about God. But God is the gospel. We get God when we are in union with him. When we come to Christ, we get Jesus. We get God. We get the Holy Spirit within us. And he gets all of us. So we're in union with Christ. The gospel is about God bringing us to himself for his glory, and it's about us getting God. But what is God, this essence that we were talking about? What is his essence? The essence is the constituent nature of God. What makes him up? The word philosophers and theologians use is ontological. You can take that, and about $5, you can get a cup of coffee, a small one now but um, you can get a cup of coffee with that word, ontological. But ontologically speaking, what our isness is, what we're made up of, that's our essence. My essence is this 69-year-old, thin-skinned, bruised-up bag of bones. That's my essence. That's who I am. But yet in this bag of bones, there is a person. And when my body dies and goes into the ground dust to dust... I live on. So there's a person that is separate, distinct from the body, from my essence. The same thing with God. God's essence is not physical, but it is spiritual. And his essence is omnipresent. It's everywhere. It doesn't take up space. So since God is everywhere, if he took up space, there'd be no room for us, would there? Because he's everywhere. So his essence is, has being within itself also. So his essence is perfection, being, a seity. He doesn't need us. He didn't need anything, but he decided to create in order to display his glory for himself, for his son, for his spirit. So God is one essence, and it's spirit but it within that essence, within that spirit being of God, there are three persons. So I am one essence, physical, with one person. But God is one essence with three persons in him. So although these three persons are distinct, just like I'm distinct from my bodily essence they are still in union of purpose, this union of perfection. They're not divided. There's no bickering or disagreements like you are with your your brothers and sisters at home, perhaps. They're all in agreement in their plan, in their plan of salvation. They're one. They're also one in their divine unity. It's indivisible. It's not that God the Father has most of the power, and he gives a little bit to the Son, or he gives a little life to the Son to give to us, or he gives a little bit of power to go to the Spirit that he can be everywhere. No, they all have all of the attributes of God at all the same time. There is no division. I'm touching the screen. It's messing up on me here. I apologize. So God is one in essence, but three persons. And that's not a contradiction because he's one in essence, is in one relationship. When you say something is a contradiction, you're saying it is A and it is non-A at the same time and in the same relationship. But God is one in his essence, and he's three in his persons, so there's two different relationships there. One is in relation to his body, his essence. He doesn't have a physical body, but a spiritual being. And one is in relationship to the three persons of God. So it is not a contradiction to say God is one in essence and three in person. John 14, 15 to 17, Jesus says, From our scripture reading this morning, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but he lives with you, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. So we see in our scripture reading this morning, Jesus is clearly speaking to his disciples just before he is going to the cross, just before he's going to leave them. He's poured a lot of love and truth into them, and now he's concerned for them, and he's praying to the Father. He doesn't want them to be abandoned. So when you pray to the Father, there's at least two persons there. Jesus is not praying to himself. It's a distinct person. One person is speaking to the other. And I didn't say people. God is not a people. So they're persons. I'm a people because I have a bodily essence and a person. That makes me a people. God is spirit and and three persons. So this is one person speaking to another. And so there's at least two there. And then he prays that the Father would send another advocate Jesus is the first advocate. He came, and he makes intercession for us. But the Spirit is also our advocate, and he comes, and he makes intercession for us, and he is in us. So we see here clearly there's three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We also see Jesus says the world cannot see him or know him or receive the Spirit. Cannot. We know the word cannot. We just don't like it. But Jesus says that the disciples do have him. And so their eyes are blessed to see and to understand. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my father in heaven. But of the Pharisees Jesus says. You could not see it. Because you do not belong to God. John 8:47 The seeing of the Messiah the understanding of the disciples is of God and the see the not seeing and the not understanding of the Pharisees is also of God the world cannot see him cannot receive him cannot know him one god in three persons the father the son and the holy spirit so we're not monotheist. I said that wrong. We are monotheist, And we are not polytheist. So we don't have multiple gods. We're not saying there's three gods. We're saying there's one God in essence. There's three persons in our one God. The Lord our God is one. But this can be very confusing, as it obviously is for me at times. Somebody needs to tell my tongue what I know in my brain. So there's many heresies that pop up. And it's very difficult to explain all these different heresies. But I found a video, which it's it's a little entertaining and comical, but it says so much about the heresies and the truth of who God is in just a very short time that I want to pull up this video for you and and let you understand. So let's start this video.
1: Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time, so try to keep it simple. Okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick.
2: Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're
1: laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure.
2: Uh, the Trinity is like, uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's mortalism, Patrick! What?
1: Mortalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh,
2: Okay, Uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star... And the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come
1: on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy,
2: Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here.
1: I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism?
2: Yes, partialism,
1: a heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine.
2: And who confesses the heresy of partialism?
1: The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai,
2: obviously... I've never heard of Voltron.
1: Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean
2: really, Patrick.
1: I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. Okay, that was probably a bit much.
2: All right, I'll try again. Uh, The Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that,
1: Patrick?
0: So that was a lot better than me trying to explain all that. So, if you're not getting what I'm laying down here, old man, then just hang in there because we're going to go deeper. We're going to look at some hard stuff, some scriptures. It's all truth, hard to understand, hard to swallow. For a man to think that he can comprehend his creator is to insult God. That's not original with me, but I'm so old I don't remember who said it. It should not surprise us that what is infinite and spiritual cannot be described by anything that is physical and created and finite. God is not like anything that we can touch. You can know him only by faith in his word, as Patrick said there at the end, as he reveals himself to us in his word. If someone starts to tell you, well, God to me is like you can be sure that what's going to follow is either heresy or scripture. And they're not going to say, God to me is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. So when you hear these worldly analogies and physical analogies, you know they're not true. God is not like us. John 14, 6-7, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus is God. The Father is in him. And if we know Jesus, we know the Father. We come to the Father through Jesus, in Jesus not by our own works, but by the works of Jesus. He fulfilled the law completely for us. So it's his righteousness imputed to us. It's accredited to our account, not infused inside of us, but imputed to us. But I am not going to wrestle with the problem of the God-man this morning in Jesus, but it is critical for us to understand that he is both God and man. He had to live for us as a man to be our righteousness. He had to die for us as a man in order to be our propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath against us. If he was not man, he could not die for man. So he cannot be the second Adam, but he is truly God and truly man. So our next point there is Jesus is truly God and truly man a man like you and me a body in essence and a person inside that man we don't think about that we think about the body and we think about god in him there's a man a person inside of that body that human body so he's called the god man he's born of a woman son of god not son of adam Because if he was son of Adam, then he would be born with the original sin, the bondage to sin that we are born with. For surely I was conceived in sin, and in sin was I brought forth, Psalm 51, 5. And we are dead in our sins, Ephesians 2. Slaves to sin, John 8. And Jesus is not born in sin. He's not subject to original sin. But he was a true man. He was tempted in every way in which we are, but yet without sin. The virgin birth, then, is not to be compromised. So let's move quickly to the spirit. But Jesus said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived contrived this deed in your heart and have lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. So Peter here equates God to the Holy Spirit. And this is not the only such passage where we see the Holy Spirit declared to be God. They lied to Peter about how much they had sold a land for. Peter says they lied to God, and they were both killed. God killed them both instantly. And we think, how harsh. Ananias and Sapphira both lied at different times than that day, and they both fell down dead. How harsh. That's not fair. So we get so accustomed to God being gracious to us When Adam and Eve sinned, God was gracious. When we sin, we sin all the time. God is gracious. We get accustomed to that. So when he acts in justice, our reaction is, well, that's not fair. That's not right. But God is fair. They sinned, they die. That's the law. You sin, you die. It's either going to be extracted in us or in Christ. Your hope is God alone, Christ alone. The Holy Spirit is God. So let's move on to the Father. If you've been in church long, if you've read your scripture much, if you learned the Lord's Prayer, our Father, we pray Heavenly Father. I pray Holy Father usually, but He's my Heavenly Father. You know that God is the Father. Ephesians 1, 2, uh, Paul opens most of his epistles to the church with this same phrase, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And our Lord Jesus Christ. So he opens with grace to you. And then he tells you all about your sin. He knocks you down. Stomps on you. Tell you how you're supposed to live. And then at the end of all of his epistles. He brings you right back to grace to you. In Christ Jesus. And I think that's how every sermon should end. So the Father is God. So we have a Father who is God. A Son who is God. A Spirit who is God. Three persons. All of the same essence, all the godness of God is fully in all three persons. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go, go, go It's a simple word. Teach them. Teach, teach. It's simple words. We know these words. We know what they mean. And it's not a suggestion. Is it only for the smiths to go? What is it that we're supposed to teach? To observe, to obey everything that he has taught us. But we don't like that word obey either. That's a four letter word, isn't it? In Ezekiel 36, God says he causes us to obey, to walk in his statutes. Ezekiel 36, 27, I think it is. We are to teach them to obey all that God has commanded us. But please note in this command concerning baptism, we have listed three persons, don't we? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If I tell you the names of Raleigh and Jeff and Bob, I'm talking about three people, three persons. And I use the plural of the word names. I gave you their names, plural. They are three men with three essences, three bodies. So in the names of them is three, it's plural. But here we see the word of God is correct grammatically. Surprise, surprise. The word of God is correct. And since God is one in essence, even though there are three persons, the instruction is to baptize in the name, singular, of these three, for they are one. So the name of the three persons of the Godhead is singular. The three are one in essence. The Lord our God is one in essence, one in name, and three in persons. So I've probably confused many of you, but remember It is not confusion to not fully understand an infinite God and be able to place him neatly into a little box, put it in our brain right next to the chocolate chip cookie recipe. So he's a little bit higher than us, a little bit higher than cookies, even though cookies with me are pretty high. So, keep wrestling with who God is. Look at the word and wrestle with who He is. But our God is one. So, since God is one, why do we only talk about Jesus when we share the gospel? That's a simple question for me. When I read the apostles' messages and Jesus' messages and teachings to open crowds, they don't just talk about love and grace. They start with the Father, and they said, you know, the Father sent the Son, and the Father loved you and sent the Son, and the Son came by his predetermined will, and you killed him. You killed him. That doesn't fill pews when you tell people you killed the Son of God. Salvation is not by Jesus' work only. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God made the promise. People in the Old Testament are saved the same way as in the new by faith, by believing God, that believing that he would provide the perfect sacrifice, the Messiah, the blood of the covenant. The promise of the Messiah is the Lamb sent and provided by God, the Father sending, the Son redeeming, and the Spirit calling. All three persons of the Godhead are necessary in redemption. In Exodus 24, 8, it says, Moses, he took the blood of the, of the sacrifice. He took the blood and he threw it on the people. And he said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. He had just given them all the law of God but aren't you glad we don't have to do that anymore? That would really bring in the crowds, wouldn't it? We could advertise on TV and radio. Hey, at the Brookville Church this week, we're going to slaughter some bulls and goats and come and let Pastor Raleigh throw blood on you. (laughs) Gross. But the blood must be shed. Sin is gross. It's heinous to God. Habakkuk says, you're much too holy to even look upon sin. You sin, you die. It's heinous to God. That was a picture of what we have in Christ, though. You must be under the blood of the Lamb. In the Old Testament, faith our, and trusting in our God, he honors our faith in that he will do that. To bring that Messiah in the perfect lamb. And it's credited as righteousness. In Matthew 26, 28. Jesus tells us that this is fulfilled now. For this is my blood of the covenant. The same wording. Blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So in the New Testament. God has provided the perfect lamb. The Messiah. He's done away with the Old Testament sacrificial system. He fulfilled it all. It's fulfilled in Christ. So the new covenant is in his blood, but it's still by faith imputed to us. It's his righteousness. It's not my righteousness in me. It's not by my works. But from the beginning, God has worked through covenants with his people, with us. And God works through covenants. We are saved through the covenant of redemption. Some covenants we're familiar with, like the covenant of works from the creation to the fall. Adam was to work in the garden and care for it, enjoy fellowship with God, walk with God, enjoy food from every tree in the garden except one. And Adam broke that covenant. So many people confuse this covenant of works in the garden from creation to the fall to be the covenant of works that is the Mosaic covenant, but it's not. They're not the same. The Mosaic Covenant was a covenant given within the larger covenant of grace. The covenant of grace was instituted in Genesis 3, right after the fall. They sinned, but they didn't die. Thanatos, they were to die that day, but they didn't. God was gracious. He did not execute justice. He's going to execute justice later in his Son. And he let them live. He is gracious to us. So the covenant of grace began at the fall in Genesis 3. It continues today. The Mosaic covenant, the law, is given inside of that covenant. And the purpose of the law is nobody is going to be saved by the works of the law. It's hopeless. Have you read it? Just, Just the summary that I gave this morning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summary of all that law. And I can't do that for five minutes until my mind turns to me, myself, my desires. We can't do it. So the law just drives us to Christ. It shows us our need for Christ. Christ had to die. His blood had to be shed. We had to be clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. So God made robes for them in the garden. But animals had to die. Blood had to be shed even in the garden in those first clothes. And he did the same thing for us in Christ. Blood had to be shed. And then we get Christ's righteous robes to cover us when we are in him. The other covenant that I mentioned that we need to know is the covenant of redemption. How does that work? When did it start? Who is it with? All the other covenants in the Bible. And I searched this. 316 verses that mention covenants of God with his people. That's a bunch. This covenant of redemption was not with people. All the others are God to his people, to his creation. The covenant of redemption is a covenant within the three persons of the Godhead. It is a covenant that is sure the three persons of the Trinity have made a covenant in love with for each other and in order to display the glory of, of their grace and the glory of each other, they have made this covenant to redeem a people for themselves, the church. In John 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, he is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So we see that Jesus has sheep. They were given to him by the father. They're specific sheep. He calls them by name. Jesus says, I know my sheep and they know me. I call them and they follow me. They follow me because the Spirit gives them life. So this is the covenant of redemption in action. The Father gives sheep, specific sheep, a bride, his church, to his son. But the son must come and redeem that bride, redeem the church, pay the bride price, be that kinsman redeemer we hear about. It with, in Ruth, with Boaz and Ruth. So the Father elects, and He gives a bride to the Son. He sends the Son to redeem the church, and the Holy Spirit then quickens upon the hearing of the word preached. How can they hear without a preacher? You are that preacher. So these sheep, though, they're sinful sheep. They cannot come to the Father of themselves. They must be redeemed. The very meaning of the word redeem signifies that there is an ownership by someone else. They must be bought back. They're dead in their trespasses and sin. We're following the ways of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. By nature, we're children of wrath, but God But God, by grace we are saved. He made us alive. He is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. Because God so loved the world, he sent his son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes, the invitation is to everyone. We're to plead with everyone to come. Charles Spurgeon, he was a Calvinist. He knew that God was sovereign in his salvation of men, but he said, plead with men. If a man is going to hell, do not let anyone go there unprayed for, unloved, and without our arms wrapped around their knees. Plead with the lost, pray for the lost, beg men to come to Jesus. But Lord, who has believed our report, why do some men believe and some do not? God must open eyes because we're blind. God must give life and the Spirit and give spiritual understanding. Without the Spirit, we cannot understand spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2.14, you cannot. Jesus said earlier, you cannot see the Spirit, receive the Spirit, or know the Spirit unless God does something. And so God the Father and God the Son, in this covenant of redemption... They send the Spirit to give us life. So the men of Israel, chosen people of God, of all the people of the earth, they're the only ones God revealed himself to. And Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he says, all day long I would have gathered you in, under my wings like a mother hen, her chicks, but you would not. Men will not come to God. They hate the light. They will not come to the light. They're at enmity against God. Romans 8. I mean, we, we cannot. Romans 8, 12 or 14, I forget which one. says you cannot obey the law of God. It's not in our nature to do that. And the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 18. The God of this world has blinded eyes and stopped the ears. The gospel is veiled. They can't see it. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 7. This gospel is veiled and they cannot see, they cannot understand spiritual things, neither see him nor know him or receive the spirit. They cannot. We don't like that word cannot. In fact, when you tell somebody you cannot do that, they're just going to, well, you watch me. I mean, that's like an impetus. You go, yes, I can. And that's that's our nature. We don't want to be told cannot. But God says this. I'm just telling you the word of God. The distinct roles then are that the Father elects in Himself according to His will, not by something in us, but according to His will, not by the works of men. And the Father gives these that He's chosen to the Son. The Son's role then is to pay the b- bride price, to come and redeem them, to lay down His life for His sheep, to die for His church. Provide his righteous robes and his righteous life to us so that he can bring us before the Father. That's why we always pray in Jesus' name. You have no right to come before the Father in prayer unless you come in Jesus' name. The spirit's role, then, is to give life and to call them to the Son. So the role of all three, though, is to glorify each other in all of their works and to glorify the Godhead and bring a people to himself. John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to whom you have given him. Later in this chapter, Jesus also says, They were yours. You gave them to me. It's a love gift from the Father to the Son, a bride, the church, to glorify the Trinity. And for the joy set before him, Jesus came and he endured the cross for the joy of gaining his bride, the church. Not because you're lovely. Do you think a self-existent God, a perfect God, As a seity and being within himself, no need for anything outside of him, really needs an old 69-year-old man like me? No. But it's just to show forth his glory. It's not me. It's not you. So these sheep are Jesus' possession. It's his bride given to him by the Father to love and glorify the Son. The Son obeys and comes and is ready. And now goes to the cross and suffers and dies to gain his bride. And in doing so, he glorifies the Father. All that the Father will give me, Jesus says, they will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, John 6 37. Jesus makes it very clear to those that are given, those that are given to him, specific people he calls by name, he knows them. They hear his voice, they follow him, he calls them, they will come to him. All will come to him because the Spirit will give them life. All of them. It's not a potential transaction. He buys them. He lays down his life. Satan has no more claim on us. He's died for us. He's redeemed us. He's bought us back. You are bought with a price. Such a high price he paid. And no one can take you out of his hand. And you are someone You can't take yourself out of his hand. He will hold you fast. As one of our songs states so truthfully, he holds us. We're in his hand. I can't snatch myself out of it, and I didn't put myself in it either. He came and grabbed me up when I was walking in sin. Oh, but God, I was walking in trespasses. I was a slave to sin, Ephesians 2. I couldn't see it. I couldn't understand it. Oh, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, by grace you are saved. He made us alive. He raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. Do you understand that you, as a Christian, are in the heavenly places? There's a new man within you. MacArthur says there's really two men within us, the old man and there's a new man. And there's a war between them, yes, but we're to walk in that spirit, as Roman H tells us. If you don't walk in the spirit, you will die. If you walk according to the flesh, you will die. If you must walk in the spirit, and I said that wrong again, bad boy. (laughs) Always say things wrong. I think one thing say something else. It's a 69-year-old tongue. you walk in the spirit you will live the spirit is the new man put on the new man die to the old man die to flesh it is the spirit who gives life the flesh is no help at all these words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life John six sixty two verses later since the flesh counts for nothing Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father enables them. Cannot. Unless the Father enables. But God, rich in mercy, because of his great love, he made us alive and raised us up and seated us in heavenly places. Our part is believe with the faith that God gives us. Faith is a gift to us. See me later if you want a list of scriptures that said God's, the faith that we have with which we come is a gift from God. Also, it's clearly te- taught us in scripture that the repentance which, which we turn from our sin is a gift of God. I can give you those scriptures. But they are not ours. What, what we come to is, is faith. It's my faith. I really do believe. And I can't wait to get to the cross and hug this wonderful treasure that God has given me in himself. And believe and live for him. But I do that because he's the one that gave me life. Ability to see and understand. And he gave me the new birth. And he gave me faith. And he gives me repentance with which I come and I am abeating it. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, I will put a new heart within you. I will take the heart of stone, the cold, dead heart that we walked in our own ways, and I will give you a new heart, a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to obey my laws. I will cause this. I will, I will, I will. God does it the same thing in Ezekiel 37 it's dead dry bones we were dead dead in our sins but God speaks the word of God the spirit moves across the bones they come to life that's us that's everyone who is born of the spirit we believe with the understanding the spirit gives us and the faith he gives us I do nothing of my flesh my flesh counts for nothing and Luther said nothing is not a little something We contribute nothing except our sin, a demerit, a demerit, a reason for us to die. That's the only thing I bring to my salvation. The throne of grace is not my throne. It's his throne. He will have mercy on whom he wills. Before life in the spirit, we're in bondage to sin and we cannot come. The Godhead, the triune God, he is the gospel. We worship this God in trinity. Do not think we are saved because we've done what is required of us. We do what is required of us because we have been saved. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to your cross I cling. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And can it be that I should gain in his reward? I hate weepy preachers. Sorry. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my Lord, would die for me? Do not marvel that I say unto you, you must be born again, Jesus says in John 3. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born with the Spirit. He blows where he wills. So it is with everyone, all of us who are born of the Spirit no exceptions it does not therefore depend on the will of man but on god who has mercy it does not therefore depend on he who runs but on god who has mercy romans 9:16 we are born not by the will of the flesh not according to the will of a man but born of god john 1:13 He says it. He says it many different ways. These are just a few. It's not according to the will of man, but we're born of God. The Spirit will help us understand this. We'd start at our calling. We all received a call, right? And we responded to that call. And we don't understand where that Spirit, why did it blow to me? But we know it did. I understand. I see these things. So we started our calling. But God, in the plan of redemption, started at his election and his redemption plan that he said, his covenant with in the Godhead, the Trinity, he starts at a lofty level that we don't understand. How, why he chose to do this, we don't know. He didn't need us. He, he's glorif- glorified in himself whether he has us or not. But he chose to create us and redeem us and not to treat us according to our sins. So let's wrestle with the Spirit and understand why he does this. The Holy Spirit then seals us with the new birth. He prays for us. He teaches us. He sanctifies us. He does not leave us as orphans, does he? He loves us. He sends another advocate, and we're sealed. We're being sanctified. Amen? But even sanctification, if you study the word, it's much of God doing the sanctifying. Our part is to spend time in the word. There is some cooperation there, but he's going to, uh, what's he call it, chastise? Sometimes it can be really painful. He just calls it chastising in Hebrews 12, 6. Any true child... He is going to chastise them. He's going to scold his child. He's going to bring you to himself. He's going to complete the work he started in us. Philippians 1.6. Our God is one in essence in summary and purpose. One in essence, one in purpose. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they are not divided in their plan of redemption. The father doesn't choose this group. The son die for this group. And the Holy Spirit come and try to woo only those who hear the word preached. They are together. One perfect being in unity of plan. In unity of thought. In unity of their love for us. All of the love of God for all of us is in all three. Fully in all three. So they are unified in their plan of redemption. Not divided. And this covenant of redemption, the plan of God, involves all three persons of the Trinity. So when we share the gospel, when we teach others, when we disciple, and I hope you're discipling someone, get an opportunity to teach. Teaching is the best thing you can do to learn the word of God because it makes you dive in. Find an opportunity to teach. That's how we're sanctified, by the washing of the water of the word. If you're not spending time in the word, I bet you're not being sanctified. Because that's how we're sanctified. Jesus, in John 17, later from what I read earlier, he says, Sanctify them in your your word. Your word is truth. And I may have said that backwards too, but I'm just an old man. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And Jesus is the word. So we are the blessed recipients of mercy. He gave us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the spirit to give us understanding, and he seals us, guaranteeing our inheritance. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation then, and thus the gospel, involves all three persons of the Trinity, Let's pray. Holy Father, truly, you are a great and merciful God. Father, why you came, why you chose us, we don't understand, but we know that you have called us and we have responded and we understand that you are God and there is no other. Help us, Father, in our lives, in in every moment of our lives to love our neighbors, to, to grab our our neighbors by the knees to pray for the lost and not let them to go to hell but plead with them Father help us to love the lost. Help us to teach and disciple those that you have given us under our wings and help us to honor you in all that we do and say we praise you, we love you we appreciate so much what you've done for us in Jesus name we pray these things Amen
2: Thanks again for joining us today. If you
0: have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at infotheridgechurch.net. At have a blessed day.